0: It's good to see you here this morning. I'm glad you're here with us. If you've been here for any length of time uh, at the church, you've heard me share a little bit about my testimony before. But those of you that may not know, I was born and raised in a Baptist church back home in North Carolina. And was, I grew to, you know, I believed in Jesus. I walked the aisle. I did all the things I was supposed to do. But I still didn't have the assurance of my salvation. And like a lot of people, I had a lot of questions and uh, doubts and fears and not knowing for sure. And uh, it seemed like the more I went to church, the more those doubts and fears just increased and grew bigger. It wasn't until I was about 20, 21 years old, maybe, that I finally came to understand grace. And I often wonder, you know, Dave, were you you saved back then as a child? And probably was, but I didn't really understand it until I was about 21 years of age. And so I often claim that as my uh, the time of my salvation, my conversion was at that point. I don't know, and I'll find out when I get to heaven exactly when that was. And I'm sure some of you are probably that way too. But anyway, at 21, I I really came to understand what grace was all about and what the gospel was and what Jesus had done for me. And it changed me in ways that I will never forget. Um, I got to the point in life where I wanted to take a stand and fight for the clarity of the gospel. I had been unsure all of my life, and I resented that, and I was a little bit uh, angry at those in my life that had not helped me to understand. It wasn't their fault, it was mine, but nonetheless, that's where I was in life. And so from that point on, I made it my mission to try to help people to understand and get through the ambigu- ambiguity, uh, ambiguity I guess you'd call it, and the uncertainty of understanding the gospel of Christ. And it was at that point that God's word just sort of came to life for me. Ultimately, it led led me to um, Bible college and seminary, and it made a difference in my life, just understanding that. Now, I believe that when a person comes to faith, it should make a difference in their life, and I believe that it does. I don't think that we all show it in the same way or at the same time or at the same pace. It takes us uh, some time to make those changes and to come to understand what it is that God wants, but in my life, it did begin to make changes in my life. As the Spirit of God had moved in, I began to change in my values, in the way that I thought, the things that were important to me, the priorities in life. And even though those things began to change within me, and I had a new um, a viewpoint, I guess, a new uh, drive, a new passion in life, those things still took time to develop. They just didn't happen over time, over overnight. It took me some time. It took me some time to, to learn what it was that God wanted. It took me some time to grow in my faith. And it uh, took some work, honestly, some decisions to make some changes, to do things differently. And this is true of all of us. We all, come, we all travel the same road uh, in that. And the point is, though, I want you to understand that the gospel of grace makes a change in a person's life. And in my life, that was something that I wanted to really fight for and to stand up for and to make it a sort of a mission in my life. Now, today, what we're going to talk about is this. I want to talk to you not about the, the gospel so much as I want to talk to you about the importance of taking a stand. In other words, what are you willing to fight for? In your life, what are you willing to stand up and say, this is important enough for me to fight? Now, I'm not talking about fist fights. I'm not talking about getting the guns and dueling. I'm talking about that you're willing to stand up and go the extra mile and make an effort to see this come about in your life or in the life of somebody else. Are you willing to fight for the things of God? And I think all of us need to ask that question. So here at the beginning of this, I want you in your own mind to think through. If I were to ask you right now today, when it comes to life in general, and be it your personal life or just the world around you, what are you willing to fight for? What are you willing to draw the line in the sand and say, this is important enough? that I'm not going to back down, I'm not going to ignore it, I'm not going to wait and let somebody else change the world or change my church or change me. I am going to do this myself. I'm willing to put forth the effort and to fight for this. So this is what I want to do today. I want to challenge you through this message that whatever it is that God has laid upon your heart, and this is really the, the deciding factor here, okay? What is it that God has laid upon your heart to take a stand for that you've just been too afraid are just too lazy to do it. I want to challenge you to stand up, and I want to challenge you to fight for it, okay? So I want to take you to a passage that is very familiar to all of us. It's the passage where Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple. And I want to begin with John chapter 2. We're also going to look at the same story uh, told to us in Matthew also, just to compare the two. But in John chapter 2, I want to read for you the first verse and. Yeah, of John chapter two verses thirteen through seventeen, we're just going to work our way through this. In verse thirteen, it says this: When it was a, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now let me explain something right here at the outset. This story takes place at the time of the Passover, an annual celebration of the Jews. They celebra- they're They celebrating a time back thousands of years earlier in the time of Moses when the angel of death went through Egypt. And that was the final straw. The people came out of Egypt and the exodus took place. And God said from this point on, you celebrate this. You celebrate this of, of the blood and, and, and the... Uh, redemption and and getting you out of there and everything. All of this represented, we know, the Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the, the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of Passover. He was the Lamb of Passover. So here he is now in Jerusalem at the Passover and the setting of this is very important. It is the last week of his life. He comes into to town the week prior to this and it's the time of the Passover and it'll take place the following weekend and he will celebrate the Passover with the disciples in the upper room and he'll ultimately uh, go to the cross the next day. Now uh, this is important because whatever takes place in this past this last week of his life is very important it means meaningful it means something and so that's the setting, the last week of his life. Now it goes on in verse 14, so let me read you the rest of this passage. It says, In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them, all, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, that's a reference to Psalms 19. It was a messianic prophecy that the Messiah would go through this experience or say this. And so the disciples just are brought to the remembrance that that is what's taking place. Now, before we explain this passage, let me read you the parallel passage in Matthew, okay? Because in Matthew, he records the same event, but shares a little bit more light on it. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 14, here's what it says. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now keep those two things in mind, okay? He said, my house is going to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves or robbers. And in the last verse, this is something I want you to note, okay, in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. So this takes place after he runs everybody out of the temple. So now we need to look at this event and talk about some of the things that we see here. For example, the money changers. Why are they there? What is this all about? What is taking place with the money changers? Well, it's Passover. And every Jew in every country from time to time, as often as they could, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So at this time of year, the city is swelled with people of all different nationalities who are Jewish by birth. And they've come there, and they have come with their own money from their own country, and that money has to be exchanged so that they could do business there in Jerusalem. Also, the temple wanted just one kind of currency. The temple did not want to have to deal with everybody's different currencies. So the money changers were a necessary evil in some sense in that they would exchange the money into something that was acceptable. And so they were there. Now, the problem is this. And this is one of the reasons he makes this statement about a den of thieves. The exchange was just lopsided as it could be. These Jews in the temple who were exchanging money were exchanging it at such a high rate that people bringing their money in were losing money by making this exchange. And so this is one of the ways in which they were stealing from the people. The next thing that I want you to see is this discussion about the animals. Why are the animals there? Why are they there? Well, again, strangers from out of the area out of the country coming in from different uh, parts of the world didn't want to bring the animals with them for sacrifice so they would come and buy them there in the city now the jews had just moved all this into the temple courts the courtyard and they were just doing business there now they also here again as a, a opportunity for the jews in the in jerusalem to take advantage of these people and they charged them exorbitant prices This is why he talks about the den of robbers and thieves, once again. Because they would bring the lame and the sick animals in and sell them for exorbitant prices so these foreigners who came to worship would have to buy them in order to make a sacrifice to God there in the temple. None of that should have been there. None of that should have been there. Um, It should have been done outside the temple. And this is the problem. This is the problem that Jesus is facing when he deals with them in this way, because they were impeding the worship in this holy place of the temple there in Jerusalem. This is why he he made this statement. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. In other words, you know, you've got all these animals all around the courtyard and all of this, and... This is supposed to be a house of prayer or a house of worship. He said, people have come here to worship me or or God my father, is what he would have said. They're going to offer sacrifices in remembrance of the Lamb of the Passover, and ultimately that was him. And yet here the Jews are doing business within the temple. And as he looked at this, it was just about all that he could take. And once he had run them out, It's interesting that in verse 14 it says that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. In other words, once they were gone, the people that needed him could get to him. And he was able to heal the sick and able to allow people to come and worship, come and offer their sacrifices and do what they came to do. But they had to be removed from the temple area first. So here's the question. And this is the question you guys need to think through if you haven't already asked this question over the years, and that is this. Was Jesus wrong in showing or displaying his anger in this manner? You know, the Bible talks about be angry, but sin not. Don't let your anger get control of you. Don't let the anger go down on, or the sun go down on your wrath and so forth. So people have asked over the years about, this in relation to Jesus? Because they look at that and they think to themselves, well, was he wrong in doing that by getting angry and running them out with a whip, yelling and screaming and calling them names? And the answer is no, he wasn't for various reasons. One would be because you can't accuse God of sin, first of all. And so it is it is not possible for God to be charged with a sin. So no, he's not sinning. But secondly, it's like Jesus at that point, after three and a half years of, of ministry, after three and a half years of preaching, after three and a half years of, of displaying the works of God to these people, he's basically drawn a line in the sand and said, I've taken all of your abuse, all of the times you've tried to kill me, all of the things you've said about me and things you've accused me of, and now the last week of my life I come to the temple and here you've turned it into a marketplace and this is it. I mean, I've had it. And he said, "You're not going to do this in into the, into the house of God." And so he did what he needed to do to restore worship in the temple. So he was right in doing so. He came to a point in his life where he says, "You know what? I've put up with a lot, but this I'll fight for. This I'll take a stand for. This is important. So then the question becomes for you and me this. What are you willing to fight for? Hmm. What are you willing to draw the line in the sand and say, this is it. I will not compromise on this. I will not give in to this. I will not allow this to happen any longer. i have lived this way too long. I've put up with this for too long, and it's time for me to make some changes. Now, this could be in reference to yourself, that there's something about you that needs to change, either something you need to start doing that you haven't done, or something you need to stop doing that you should have given up a long time ago. It also could be in reference to the world around you. To take, to stand, to stand up and draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And out of righteous indignation to say, this is not right before the Lord and it's got to stop. Something you either do or something you give up or something you want to change around, about the world around you. But no matter what it is, you have to decide. Because it's you that's making this decision. As you evaluate your life and you look at it and and you look at things that are going on in the world and in the church and in your families and whatever it may be, and you think, you know what? This shouldn't be. And I've let it go on too long. And so, yeah, I'm going to make me a whip. I'm going to take my stand right here. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do what I want to do in the time we have remaining is give you examples. Examples where you might do just that, okay? Here's an example. Your marriage may be an area where you need to step up and make some changes. You need to take a stand and you need to be willing to fight for it. You look at your marriage and you have the same old problems you've had for years. Same issues, nothing's ever changed. You've known about it, you're both aware of it, but nothing ever changes. Nobody's willing to make the changes necessary to fix the problem. But instead, what you've done year after year is you just kind of kick the can on down the road and you think, well, it'll just take care of itself. And it hasn't. You know what? It probably won't until you make a decision to draw the line in the sand and say, you know what, I'm going to fight for this. Enough is enough. I'm tired of living this way. I'm going to make the changes in me, and I'm going to become the person, the husband or the wife that I need to be, whatever, before God to be that person to make the changes in this marriage. And it's going to take effort. It's going to take some determination, and it's going to take some time. But you have to ask yourself this question. Is my marriage worth fighting for? And once you've made that decision that it is, then everything else will fall in place as you begin to seek the Lord and to move forward in making the necessary changes. But unless you make the determination and come to the conclusion that this is worth the fight, then you won't do anything. So my challenge to you is this, that if you're struggling in your marriage, I'm I'm asking you before the Lord to fight for it, to fight for it. Because I believe with all my heart that's what God wants you to do. Here's another area of example, and that is your children. You may be struggling with your children, and you look at yourself and you think, you know what? I, in all honesty, don't spend enough time with my children. I don't discipline them in the right way. I don't teach them about the things of God. And maybe there are some changes that need to be made. Maybe you need to make some decisions that you're going to spend more time teaching your children the right way to live and teaching your children what it is that God would have them to do and praying with them at night or praying with them during the day, but being there for them in their times of important events then I'm going to maybe pull away from doing the things that I've always wanted to do or the things I have thought were important, and I'm going to purposely make an effort to change and to spend the time with my children the way that I need to. Bring them to church. Do the right thing. Be the godly parent. Be the example. Are your children worth fighting for? See, now this is a decision you have to make because we all say, yeah, they are, but then we go right on doing the things we've always done and ignoring the children, whatever it is they need, whether it be discipline or provision or protection or whatever, instruction. And we wonder sometimes why it is that we end up and our children are rebellious and going in different directions and not honoring the Lord. And maybe we can look back. The decisions that we made along the way to just let life go by and let it happen. And so I'm asking you and I'm encouraging you that you make the decision that, yeah, my kids are worth fighting for. My family's worth fighting for and I'm going to do that. Whatever it takes, I'm going to fight for it. Here's another example. Protecting the innocent. Protecting the innocent. Now in this, I'm talking about Things that are going on in this world and we look around us, and man, there's so much going on that is is this ungodly. You know, we talk about the pro life and pro choice debate. There's no debate with God. You protect children. You protect them. You take a stand, you say, you know what, this is wrong, and I'm going to do everything that I can to bring an end to it. You may be limited, we all are. But do what you can. It may mean that you make some changes in your life to do things differently, to get involved where you've never been involved before. What about those that are innocent in this way, those that are abused? We talk about abuse of women and we talk about the abuse of children and the poor and the elderly. These things are going on in this world all around us, and we sit back and we do nothing. We think, doggone it, that's a terrible thing. But when do we draw the line in the sand? When do we say, you know what, this is worth fighting for? And I've got to do something. I've got to fight for it. And I've got to take a stand for these that are innocent and those that can't take care of themselves. And it may mean getting out of your comfort zone. Getting out in front, t- front of the TV, you know, doing whatever you've got to do to put in the time and effort and going and doing things that are completely different for you. And so much out of your comfort zone that it's unbelievable. But you're willing to say, okay, this is something I'm burdened about and I really want to fight for this. And so you fight for it. Your own spiritual growth, that's a big one. You know, at what point do we make a decision in our lives that my walk with God, my fellowship with the Lord, my closeness with Him, my obedience to Him, all of this is important. And in a world where everything's going against God and against the things of God, you and I have got to take a stand. And we've got to decide in our lives that I'm not going to be that way. I'm going to be the person that knows the Scripture It's going to require you studying your Bible. This sounds so simplistic, but how many of us have made decisions year after year after year to study the Bible and we never do? And you didn't because you weren't willing to fight for it. Church attendance. Fellowship with other believers. My goodness, you know, we just take it for granted. We take it lightly. If you don't fight for it, it's not going to change. Prayer, I mean, all of these things, everything that we need to do as believers or should do, if I'm not willing to take a stand, get out of my comfort zone, and do what's required to fight for this because I know that it's important, then it will never change. It really won't. So I want to encourage you as we talk through these things that you're willing and ready and able to make that stand. Here's another area. The well-being of the church. To just fight for that. You know, our church, we're struggling right now. We've come through this whole mess like other churches have. With COVID and people that have uh, quarantined and not come back. And people that used to give and don't give. And all of the things that other churches are struggling with. But my question is this. Why? Why? Why is it that we take a church attendance so lightly that it's easy now for us just to say, well, that's not important anymore. I haven't been in church in two months, so I, you know, I guess I don't need it. Well, yeah, you do. You know, you need to be in the fellowship of other believers. Scripture talks about that. You need to be under the teaching of the Word of God. When was the last time you invited anybody to come to church? How much have you been giving? to the church since all this mess started. Church is hurting. We are. And I'm, we're not alone. I'm, I'm sure all the other churches are hurting too. But why is it that we as believers can take such a, I don't know, flippant view, that if we don't go to church, we don't, the church doesn't need my money. You know, we made a commitment as believers and as members of this church to support this church financially. All of us did, And as long as you're a part of this church, we all have a responsibility, all of us, to give. So where do you draw the line in the sand? Where do you say enough is enough? I'm tired of living this way. I'm going to fight to do what is right before God. If that means being at church on a regular basis and fellowshipping and encouraging each other and being a part of each other's life, if it means um, to, to give money that, you know, whatever I've got to give a portion of it, give something, to be faithful at doing that, if it means volunteering to work in the church, because the church is important to me, and I'm committed to the well being of my church. Why don't you fight for it? You know, I've told people throughout my ministry, of years of ministry, you know, people who aren't willing to fight for the church don't deserve a church. Sounds harsh, but I believe that. You know, I get tired of people coming to church whenever it's convenient for them, or giving to the church whenever it's convenient for them. That shouldn't be. That shouldn't be. There's some things worth fighting for, and your church is one of them. Here's the last example I want to talk about, and that is the one I mentioned or opened up with, and that is the gospel itself. To be willing to fight for the clarity and the simplicity of the gospel. Let me read you this, this verse. It's not a passage, just this one verse. It's in John chapter 6, verse 47. Here's what it says. We've used it before at the end of a service. I just want to share it here. It says, Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. The one who believes has eternal life. Now, this is about as simple and straightforward as it can be. You know, the gospel is something that we as as Christians and theologians and pastors, we can really mess it up. You know what? We really can. We can confuse people. We can add works to it. We can say things that sound good on the outside but really are not true. Let me read you this. I came across this this week. I was just thumbing through Facebook and there was a a thing that flipped by and here's what it said. I had to go back and get it. I had to go back later and look at it. Here's what it said. The heading of it is this. Celebrities who don't believe in a higher power Caught my attention, I thought, well, I'd like to know. Who are some of the celebrities that I see on TV or hear on the radio? Who are they and what is really their their personal belief? Now, some of these you'll recognize and know some of them you won't. Every one of them that I'm mentioning has proclaimed publicly to be an atheist either through an interview they had through Larry King or Oprah Winfrey or something they wrote an article in a magazine but these are these are um, substantiated they're 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 uh validated that these are what they said or what they believe and I'm just going to summarize some Brad Pitt we all know Brad Pitt uh He's done some some good movies and so forth. He claims to be an atheist. He said that I am twenty percent atheist and eighty percent agnostic. Now the difference between the two is this: an atheist says I'm convinced there's no God, and agnostic simply says I don't know, but I don't think there is. But I just don't know. David or Daniel Radcliffe, he was Harry Potter. He's an atheist. Proclaimed publicly, he doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in life after death, he's an atheist. Morgan Freeman, one of my favorite actors. Y'all know who Morgan Freeman is? The African-American actor, older gentleman, been around for years. I love him. He's so good, and his characters are, are just really good whenever he plays something. He's even portrayed or played God in movies. Okay. He says, oh, no, no, he said there's no God. And he publicly proclaimed to be an atheist. Natalie Portman, actress who was in Star Wars, and I'm sure other movies I don't know, but I know she had a part in Star Wars. She said, there is no life after death. This is it. And this is why she said, I think we need to put all we can get into this life and grab all we can because this is it. That's a sad, sad thought, you know? Old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra. Now, All of us that are older than... I don't know how, whatever age you would remember Frank Sinatra, but a lot of us grew up with Frank Sinatra. Uh, and we're, I'm telling my age here. But Frank Sinatra said one time when interviewed, he said, I believe in what I can see, and I do not believe there's a personal God. What a shame. He died, he did it his way, and he died. Emma Thompson, a famous actress, he said, she said, I am an atheist. I regard religion with fear and suspicion. George Clooney, he's the hottie, right? All the women like George Clooney. George Clooney says, I don't believe in those things, talking about God or the Bible or spirituality or anything. Jodie Foster, she was the actress that played in Silence of the Lambs. She said, I am an atheist and I haven't found my own proof that would make me believe in God. In other words, there's nothing out there to make me see or to believe that there's a God. Again, we're going to show our age here. Catherine Hepburn. How many of you remember Catherine Hepburn? She said this. Now, she was such a a stately lady, you know, very, very, uh, I don't know, polished and just such a, a wonderful lady in the movies. She said this in one of her interviews. She said, I'm an atheist and that's it. You don't go anywhere when you die. And then lastly is old Billy Joel, the famous singer. We all know, our, know the songs of Billy Joel. Here's what he said. He said, I'm an atheist who would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. All of these people publicly in interviews have stated and on the record as saying that they are atheists. Now in that, that article that I read... It went on to say that there are others who do believe in life after death, our higher power. They were Buddhists and Muslims and everything else, you know, Scientologists. We all have seen those on TV. And then there was a few that were what we believed or what they portrayed as born-again believers. Denzel Washington was one. He reads his Bible every day. He's a believer from what he said. But now here's the point. You and I will probably never have the opportunity to speak to one of these people that I've mentioned. We'll never see them. And unfortunately, many of them will die without Christ in their lives. And the thing that caught my attention as I read through those statements that they made was that some of them, and probably all of them, if honest, They say they're atheists, but in reality, they just have never, ever looked. They just really don't know. Most of them are more agnostic than atheists because they kept saying, you know, nothing has ever proven itself to be real to me, so I don't believe it. But what if something did? What if somebody could reach them with the simplicity of the gospel that very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me jesus christ has eternal life no matter what you've done no matter who you are no matter what the sin is that i as the god of the universe through my son jesus can cleanse you of all of your sin if you'll just believe what if somebody could get that message and help them to understand and answer their questions and they came to christ and all we can do for people like this is to pray that somebody will because you and I will never, ever see these people. But there are people in your life that you will see. There are people in your life that believe that exact same thing. That if pushed to the wall, they would say it. They would clearly say, I don't believe And it's not that they have heard and that they've seen and that they've studied it and rejected it. It's that nobody's ever explained it to them. All they've ever heard is the the hellfire and brimstone damnation type of message that people portray or give to them and, and they rejected it. But what if they heard the clarity of the gospel and what grace is all about, what forgiveness is all about, What freedom is all about. They might just believe. You and I have been given what the Bible calls a great commission. We've been given the job of taking that message to people who really don't want to hear it, they just don't know any better. And over the years, we thought about it and we've maybe tried to talk to somebody and it blew up in our faces and it was really uncomfortable and we didn't like that. But when we look at the alternative, you know what? If they continue down that road, they're lost forever. People that we know, people that some we love, They're, they're related to us or we know them personally. Is that not worth fighting for? Is that not worth saying I need to make some changes? That's important enough for me to learn how to talk to them and when God brings them across my path, to be willing and able to speak and to share the gospel of grace with them. That's something we all should fight for. But then let's be honest. How many, and answer this for yourself, how many... people in your life, have you ever shared the gospel with? How many people have you ever in your life said that God loves you and He forgives you if you'll put your faith in Jesus? How many of you have ever said something as simple as this verse, I tell you the one who believes has eternal life. We just don't. Because it's not worth the fight. I want to encourage you. That there are some things in life that are worth fighting for. Jesus thought so. He made a whip and cleaned it out, cleaned the temple out. Because he said, no, this is worth fighting for. My request, my hope, my desires that all of us, myself included, would find something in our lives that God has led us to fight for because it's that important. You say, well, what is that, Pastor? And the answer is, I don't know. That's up to you. You see, that's between you and the Lord. How do I go about it? Well, I can give you some steps, maybe. The first thing you've got to do is look and ask yourself this, what am I deeply convicted about? What is the desire of my heart? What do I look at and I almost cry because of what's going on? Be it my family, the world, my personal life, my church, whatever. That's where you start. The thing that bothers you the most, then start there. Then you need to pray for God's help, that the Spirit of God would not only lead you, but guide you and prepare the way. But here's the important part right here, and here's where we all mess up. Because, you see, we do the first couple. We'll pray about things and we'll think about things and we'll maybe even make some plans. But here's the, 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 the most important, that is this. you got to act. you got to take the first step and do something. You see, right there is where we all fall down is we don't step out and do anything. So here's my, here's my plea, and here's where I'm going to bring it to an end, okay? whatever God lays on your heart, where you you look at that and you think, that is important to me and it's falling by the wayside. That is important. Then fight for it. You're, it's up to you. You're going to have to fight for it or nothing will ever change. I want you to take your little cups here and I want you to think with me before you open these up. Just think with me, Okay. Uh, here's what I want. You know, when when the disciples met there in the upper room with Jesus that end of that week, um, they partook together. The Bible tells us of the bread and the wine, and He said, "Do this as often as you do in remem- remembrance of Me." I want you to remember and reflect over what I'm doing for you. Now, that's important, but there's also in the New Testament the instruction that as we come before the Lord and we hold the bread and the wine in our hands and we're reflecting over what he's done for us and how much he loved us, that we're supposed to do a little self-examination. Because, you see, there might be something in your life that needs to change. And so we come together, see, as a church, and everybody's worthy, so please don't think that because there's something going on in your life that needs to change, you shouldn't be doing this. Yes, you should. This is exactly where you should be. And so we come together, we partake together, we reflect over the Lord, and we thank Him for what He's done. And here's what I want you to do today. Whatever God is laying upon your heart that needs to change in your life, where you think you're saying to yourself, I need to fight for this, or nothing nothing will ever change. I'll still be sitting here a year from now, praying for the same things, unless I step up and do something then today, as you partake with me together, with this, then change it. Make a commitment to God today to fight for that and make that change in your life. Let's unwrap the bread. The Bible tells us that that night in the upper room that he took the bread and he passed it to the disciples and he said to them, he said, now this is my body which is broken for you. And he said, I want you to take this. And as often as you do it, I want you to do it to remember me. And so as we take this together today, we're clearing our minds of everything else and we are reflecting over what he's done for us, how he suffered and how he died for you, for all of your sins. He paid the price. Let's partake together in remembrance of him. The Bible tells us that that same night he took the cup. As you unwrap your cup, the juice represents the blood of Christ. The wine that night, as they took it, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. He said, as often as you drink this, you drink this in remembrance of me. In other words, what I'm doing. The blood of the sacrifice, the lamb of Passover, It's what took away the sin. It's what protected the Israelites during the time of Moses. It's what protects us against the wrath of God in this day and age, our faith in the blood of Christ. So as we partake together, we reflect and we remember what he's done, and we thank him for it. Let's partake together. Our Heavenly Fathers, we bow here before you. Father, we are overwhelmed with the reality that there are some things in our lives that are important. They're important to you and ought to be important to us. Things that we have forgotten, that we have let fall by the wayside. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come today to thank you for sending your Son to die on a cross for us as we celebrate his body and blood. Father, help us to be willing to fight for what is good help us to be willing to take a stand for what is right father i pray for each one of us that we will commit ourselves to make a difference in our families in our church in our nation and father may you lead and guide us to do whatever it is that you've called us personally to do and may you be honored in jesus name amen